0: Aimed at the practical application of the Christian worldview. My name is Brandon, and we're going to cover three things in this episode today. We're going to look at the myth of neutrality and how it affects society and culture. We're going to look at shame in the Christian life. And we're going to end it all on um, what I'm calling for now the theological moment, where basically we're going to read a selected writing from a theologian from our past and see what insights and wisdom we can gain from them. What do we mean by the myth of neutrality? Well, basically, the idea is that it's a myth that anybody is actually truly neutral or that any group of people are actually truly neutral. And so we all have these basic beliefs that we're going to take in every conversation, decision, experience that we have. Um, and we can try to be unbiased. We can try to mitigate those. But ultimately, we're going to have these, these basic beliefs that we hold on to. So, for example, you know, I have a basic belief in objective truth, that there are some things that are true objectively And that's something that I can't mitigate or be unbiased about when I enter into conversations and experiences. Same thing with morality. I have the belief, the basic belief that there are certain things that are right and certain things that are wrong, objectively right and wrong, or objective, good and evil. Those are just basic beliefs that I I can't set to the side or check at the door, and I shouldn't. Um, And so, yeah, the myth of neutrality is basically that every conversation, every experience you have in society and culture with anybody, they're going to have a basic set of beliefs that they're bringing to the table, that they're using to, uh, using as lenses to look at the experiences that they're that they're facing. And so, um, a lot of times we we try to have neutral, or we try to pretend that society is neutral, um, but it isn't. And so we're going to look at at least one example today of how um, what could be perceived as a neutral medium for uh, information um, actually isn't a neutral medium like we expect it to be. The main example of this today, of our society not being neutral or um, not having its own basic set of beliefs that it's indoctrinating us and our kids with, um, is YouTube. And you might be thinking, well, of course YouTube isn't safe for kids. Like, how, how could it be? And, and that's a great intuition to have. Um, but for a lot of people, they just think, okay, we have these basic set of beliefs. We want to protect children. We want to um, – there's just certain things that are not okay for kids to be involved with or to see or to view or things like that. And so you'd think that there could be a a kid's YouTube or there'd be some kind of safety measures in place, um, age restriction, login kind of stuff. Uh, But you can actually go to YouTube right now, not logged in, uh, not verified age, nothing like that. And you can just search uh, the name Sam Smith. He's a popular artist today. He performed at the latest award show. And if you did that, you could watch his newest music video. And I actually went to it, clicked on it, not signed in, no kind of age verification just to see if you could even get to it. And you can, and you can watch that video. And uh, there's just some really creepy, crazy things that go on in that video uh, that have to do, not to give too much detail, but have to do with men dressed in lingerie uh, with each other. And so I don't want to give more detail on that, but it's, it's amazing the things that you can view on there. And so a kid could be riding home uh, from school, hear this song on the radio, because it's a popular song. It's a catchy song, like the beat is catchy, the it's, uh, it's popular for that reason and they can think, oh, I want to find that on YouTube. Search it up, look at it and they're going to see three or four minutes, however long a music video is, of just things they don't need to see. Things that are indoctrinating and poisoning their mind. And so, that's just one small example of how culture and society is not neutral like we assume. We don't operate from the same basic set of beliefs. And you could also look at uh, the way that language is changing. The way if you Kind of keep track of any of the some of the scientific journals, things like that. That they're switching language from uh, mothers and things like that to using terms like pregnant person or people that can become pregnant. Uh, and they're trying to kind of create this void in our language where things that used to just be common sense are no longer common sense. Society as a whole, or culture, maybe is a better way to put it. As a whole, has a set of beliefs that they want. Everybody to agree with that they want people to accept and think are, is okay. Think it's the way the world should work. Think it's how reality um, functions. And um, the loudest people in the society and culture, um, probably a, a louder minority of people, but they they speak the most. They get the most airtime. They want our children to be indoctrinated into these things that are not true. They want them to. Uh, start to believe things or be accepting of things that are not good for them. And they do this on purpose because they know children uh, are growing and being formed and their minds are malleable to different things. And so people in their life that are authorities can influence them and help them to think through things. And so that's our job is to help children learn to think properly. But society knows this. These, These people in society know this. And so they use these mediums to infiltrate and influence children so that they will become more and more accepting of lifestyles and things like that that are contrary to uh, God's way, to contrary to scripture, contrary to what God has laid out as right and proper for human beings, um, for our flourishing and for our good. A lot of times in society, um, the other side of society expects Christians to check their religion at the door, to leave Christianity out of it, that they... Claim that it's not proper for us to bring our beliefs into the conversation, into the way we vote, into uh, the experiences that we have. Um, But I'm here just to say that they don't do that. They don't check all of their beliefs or basic set of principles at the door, that they bring them with them and they uh, use them to influence uh, culture and society around them. And so that we should do the same. We shouldn't pretend that society is neutral to try to. Appease sensibilities or to um, gain any kind of favor, because nobody else is doing that, and we can't act, we cannot do that to try to gain some favor in their eyes. And nor should we. I mean, everybody's going to have these basic beliefs. They they function and they change the way that we operate daily. And so we can't ultimately check them all at the door and ignore them and pretend like they don't exist. So with that idea that we can't check our basic beliefs at the door, that we're not supposed to take off our Christian lenses as we leave our house and enter uh, the world around us, that we're supposed to keep those on, we use them to judge every situation we come into, we want everything to pour back to Scripture as our um, foundational belief system. And so as we do that, that's going to probably put us in situations where we're uh, going against the grain in culture, where we're not exactly... um, fitting all the norms that culture expects of us, and that's a good thing. Um, But with that can come uh, some embarrassment or some fear um, or potentially some shame in not wanting to cause a ruckus or not wanting to be a problem in society. And and that's a a normal uh, fear, I think, that we can all face. And so we're going to talk about shame a little bit in the Christian life. I'm going to share a story with you of a time in my life where – I did not act appropriately, and it is, even to this day, I still feel some shame when I think back on that story, but how God has used that situation in my life, that experience in my life, um, and keeping it in my mind uh, to remind me of some issues that I have, and to sanctify me, and that the Holy Spirit uses it as a way to push me forward and move me more and more to be reliant on Jesus every day. So, uh, a little over a year ago. Uh, Okay, it was to a year and a half ago. I ended up uh, coaching a second grade basketball team for my son, and I had no intention of coaching this basketball team. My son wanted to try it, and so I volunteered to to help if I could in any way, and uh, long story short, they were one coach short, and they said, hey, you're going to help by being a head coach of a second grade basketball team. No, I know very little about basketball. Um, actually, I know nothing about basketball. I watch it from time to time, and I know the basic, you know, point of basketball, but as far as teaching it to others or anything like that, no idea, not a clue in the world. Um, and for second grade, they actually had some additional rules, because second grade was the first year that they had the rec uh, league for kids. And so they had additional rules to kind of help them learn the game, to uh, promote just uh, the ability to actually play the game and not just it be total chaos with second graders running around on a basketball court. And so I went into it uh, trying to be positive, thinking, well, okay, this would be a good time for me to hang out with my son. Uh, he was on the team that I was coaching, so that was good. And uh, so we went through the season. It was good. I learned a lot. There was a lot of help from some other parents on the team who actually knew more about basketball, which is great. Uh, but then at the very end of it, they had a, a tournament, kind of a single elimination tournament where your team would come, you'd play, if you lost, that was the end of it, you'd go home and go on, or if you win, you'd go on in the tournament. Well, we, uh, the team actually won their first game, and so we were in the second game of the tournament, this single elimination tournament, and uh, I'd always try to be encouraging to the kids, and uh, luckily, like I said, the other parents, some of them were super helpful in actually teaching them some foundational basic things of basketball, but one of the rules for second-graders, was they had a thing against double teaming so that uh, the kids could actually get down the court and try to, try to dribble a little bit, try to do some passing, things of that nature. And they also had a, a deal where they couldn't play full court defense or even at half court they had to stay. Uh, so these basketball courts all had like volleyball lines on them as well for indoor volleyball games. And so there was that extra additional line past the half court line is where before defense was supposed to start, being played just so the kids could get down the court and try to function some kind of offense. Um, Yeah, and just kind of try to learn the game, basically. So we're playing uh, in that game, and in the second half, uh, as things were going on, as the game started winding down and getting a little closer to ending, um, four or five times down the court, I noticed the, uh, the kid on my team that was bringing the ball down he'd be double teamed, like right at half court. As soon as he crossed half court, he'd be double teamed and they'd strip the ball from him and then it would just turn into chaos. And after about the fourth or fifth time this happened and nothing was being said about it, I, I got pretty angry and uh, yelled out at the ref that my team was going to start playing defense from the half court line. And to make it better, I actually walked on the sideline to the half court line and pointed at it. And as I yelled, uh, that we were going to start playing defense from here as well. The other coach actually overheard it and was asked what was going on. And, and the ref acknowledged that I was upset because he wasn't uh, following the, just the basic rules that were set up by the league, You know, to keep the kids off of defense a little bit so they could get across half court and at least learn some of the game. Um, but yeah, so here I was in front of, you know not like a huge crowd, obviously, but a bunch of parents, a bunch of kids, second graders, and I'm being a great role model on how to be an adult and control yourself when things aren't going your way. And so uh, I sent an email out after that was over to the parents, like, hey, I wasn't upset with your kids at all. They did great. Um, I had a blast this season just getting to know them and and hanging out with them and stuff like that. Uh, That was all just the ref. And I even talked to the ref after the game and apologized. I was like, man, I know you're trying to wrangle um, 10 second graders and it's total chaos. And so I apologized to him and, you know, went on with my day. After that, but even to this day, like even telling this story, I still feel some shame that I was uh, that upset over a second grade basketball game in front of that many random strangers and people that I, I should have been a better uh, role model for, especially for the kids. Um, and so that's, an, that's a kind of a goofy story, but a time in my life where um, I let uh, anger get the best of me. And thankfully, I didn't yell any uh, expletives or curse words or anything like that. Thankfully, uh, I was at least controlled enough not to be a total idiot, but still, um, that's definitely a time where God uses that shame, and and still, like I said, to this day, uh, ashamed when I think back on it, Um, but he's used it in my life to correct me in other ways, so um, I still get angry. I still have a mouth and don't act appropriately uh, a lot of times, but I have noticed uh, generally it is much quicker to be convicted by the Holy Spirit of some shame on how I acted in a situation and to seek reconciliation sooner, um, to recognize when I've been wrong uh, in those things. And so that's one area where I think God has used a past experience that I'm ashamed by still. And, um, he uses it to correct and to, uh, influence me to, uh, to be more like Jesus, to try, to let some of that anger go. And it's, and I've, I've gotten better as time goes on, but still, Uh, Still a person, still broken, Uh, but that's an area where I think shame has been used positively in my life by the Holy Spirit to sanctify me and push me to be more like Jesus. But there's also times where shame in my life, something I'm ashamed about, um, is a sin, and it's something that uh, is an abomination to the Lord. And in one of those cases, when I think about society being not neutral, I think about times in my life where I've been out in public with um, friends and family, and the topic of Christianity or Jesus or church, we're talking about something to do with Christianity and Jesus has come up and we're having a a good conversation talking about, um, maybe ways God has blessed somebody in their life or different things along those lines. And I will catch myself at times, um, wishing that the person talking about these things was just a little quieter. or was a little, um, less, uh, what's the word? I'm trying to think the right word, like flamboyant in the way that they talk or less exaggerated maybe. Um, Because I'm, I I catch myself in the back of my mind thinking, okay, I know our culture. I know we're not like persecuted or anything like that as Christians, especially um, in the part of the country I live in, but uh, it's definitely can be something that can be a hot hot button issue. It's something that can cause a little dust up, a little stir up. And so I've found myself thinking like, man, I wish they wouldn't be quite as loud because I don't think I want to deal with the potential um, awkwardness of somebody that's very anti-Christian, overhearing and causing a scene and things like that. And then I, and for good reason, I'm convicted by the Holy Spirit and feel shame that I think, wow, we need to be a, a little quieter as we talk about these things. Like as we talk about the truth of, of God and the ways that he's blessed us and the ways that he's Um, teaching us and guiding us and sanctifying us. And so that's the time I think where shame has been in my life and God uses it again to convict me, but it's because it's a sin. Um, Not every time that we feel ashamed about something, is it a sin? Like me feeling shame about having an angry outburst, I don't think that's a sin for me to feel shame about that. That's a good thing that God uses it to convict me. But for me to be ashamed about somebody talking about Jesus or the things of God just a little too loud, that is a sin. And that's something that it's embarrassing to actually think about. Um, and so that's one of those things that I think we have to be encouraging to one another. Um, we have to push each other forward to lean into those things. Uh, that We know that culturally, uh, those are the things that people need to hear. Those are the things that people need to be aware of. And so we can just accept that shame that we have. And we know that God is using it for our good to convict us and to sanctify us to be more and more like Jesus every day. So we're going to move into the last section of the episode here, and this is something I think I want to start ending every episode with. Um, And for right now, I'm calling it the theological moment. Uh, There's probably a catchier, uh, flashier term I could use. I just couldn't think of one off the top of my head. So if randomly, as these episodes continue on, if I change it from theological moment to something that sounds more intriguing and better, uh, you'll know that somebody gave me a better idea than what I came up with. But the basic idea of the theological moment is we're just going to read... Um, part of a selected writing from uh, Theologian of the Past. And so to start, we're going to start with um, the work of James Arminius. Uh, all of his works are available online, uh, and they're set up in three volumes. They're for free. You can find them and read them. So we're going to start in Volume 1, which is just Oration 1, and it's called The Object of Theology. It is a longer section, and so we're going to break it up into pieces. We're not going to read the whole thing here. And, um there are a, I've read through it a handful of times now. There are a few words that I struggle to pronounce. So if I struggle to pronounce them, just uh, know that that's on me. And you could probably look them up and find out the best way to pronounce them. Uh, so just, just go with it and uh, give me a little bit of grace in that. But that's what we're going to read. Um, this first part is just the beginning section of Oration 1 uh, called The Object of Theology by James Arminius in Volume 1 of his works. The Object of Theology. To Almighty God alone, being the inherent and absolute right, will, and power of determining concerning us, since therefore it has been pleased Him to call me His unworthy servant, from the ecclesiastical functions which I have for some years discharged in the Church of His Son, in the populous city of Amsterdam, and to give Him, and to give me the appointment of the theological professorship, in this most celebrated university, I counted it to my duty not to manifest too much reluctance to this vocation although I was well acquainted with my incapacity for such an office, which with the greatest willingness and sincerity I then confessed and must still acknowledge indeed the consciousness of my own insufficiency operated as a persuasive to me to not to listen to this vocation, of which fact I can cite as a witness that God, who is both the inspector and the judge of my conscience, of this consciousness of my own insufficiency, several persons of great probity and learning are also witnesses, for they were the cause of my engaging in this office, provided it were offered to me in a legitimate order and manner. But as they suggested, and as experience itself had frequently taught me, that is a dangerous thing to adhere to one's own judgment with pertinacity and to pay too much regard to the opinion which we entertain of ourselves, because almost all of us have little discernment in those matters which concern ourselves. I suffered myself to be induced by the authority of their judgment, to enter upon this difficult and burdensome province, which may God enable me to commence with tokens of his, design, of his divine approbation under his propitious auspices. Although I am beyond measure, cast down, and almost shudder with fear, solely at the anticipation of this office and its duties, yet I can scarcely indulge in a doubt of divine approval and support when my mind attentively considers what are the causes on account of which his vocation was appointed, the manner in which it is committed to execution and the plans by which it is brought to a conclusion. For this cause I entertain an assured hope of the perpetual presence of divine assistance, and with due humility of mind I venture in God's holy name to take this charge upon me and to enter upon its duties. I most earnestly beseech all in each of you, and if the benevolence which to the present time you have expressed towards me by many and most signal tokens will allow such a liberty, I implore, nay, So pressing it may present necessity, I solemnly conjure you to unite with me in ardent wishes and fervent intercessions before God, the Father of lights, that ready as I am out of pure affection to contribute to your profit, he may be pleased graciously to supply his servant with the gifts which are necessary to the proper discharge of these functions and to bestow upon me his benevolent favor, guidance, and protection through the whole course of this vocation. But it appears to me that I shall be acting to the same good purpose, if at the commencement of my office I offer some general remarks on sacred theology by way of preface and enter in an explanation of its extent, dignity, and excellence, this discourse will serve yet more and more to incite the mind of students who profess themselves dedicated to the service of this divine wisdom, fearlessly to proceed in the career upon which they have entered, diligently to urge on their progress, and to keep up an unceasing contest till they arrive at its termination. Thus may they hereafter become the instruments of God unto salvation in the church of his saints, qualified and fitted for the sanctification of his divine name, and formed for the edifying of the body of Christ in the Spirit. When I have effected this design, I shall think with Socrates, that in such an entrance on my duties I have discharged no inconsiderable part of them to some good effect, For that wisest of the Gentiles was accustomed to say that he had properly accomplished his duty of teaching. When he had once communicated an impulse to the minds of the hearers and had inspired them with an ardent desire of learning, nor did he make this remark without reason. For to a willing man nothing is difficult, especially when God has promised the clearest revelation of his secrets to those who shall meditate on his law day and night. In such a manner does this promise of God act, that on those matters which far surpass, surpass the capacity of the human mind we may adopt the expression of isocrates. If thou be desirous of receiving instruction, thou shalt learn many things. This explanation will be of no small service to myself, for in the very earnest recommendation of this study which I give to others I prescribe to myself a law and rule by which I ought to walk in this profession, and an additional necessity is thus imposed on me of conducting myself in my new office with holiness and modesty, and in an all good conscience, that in case I should afterwards turn aside from the right path, which may our gracious God prevent, such a solemn recommendation of the study may be cast in my face to my shame. In the discussion of this subject, I do not think it necessary to utter any protestation before professors most learned in jurisprudence, most skillful in medicine, most subtle in philosophy, and most erudite in languages. Before such learned persons, I have no need to enter into any protestation for the purpose of removing from myself a suspicion of wishing to bring into neglect or contempt that particular study which each of them cultivates. For to every kind of study in the most noble theater of the sciences I assign, as it becomes to me, its due place, and that an honorable one, and each being content with its subordinate station, all of them with the greatest willingness, concede the President's throne to that science of which I am now treating. I shall adopt the plain and simple species of oratory which, according to Euripides, belongs peculiarly to truth. I am not ignorant that some resemblance and relation ought to exist between an oration and the subjects that are discussed in it, and therefore that a certain divine method of speech is required when we attempt to speak on divine things according to their dignity. But I choose plainness and simplicity, because theology need no ornament, but it is content to be taught, and because it is out of my power to make an effort towards acquiring a style that may be in any degree worthy of such a subject. In discussing the dignity and excellence of sacred theology, I shall briefly confine it within four titles. An imitation of the method which obtains in human sciences that are estimated according to the excellence of their object, their author, their end, and of the importance of the reasons by which each of them is supported. I shall follow the same plan, speaking first of the object of theology, then of its author, afterward of its end, and lastly, of its certainty. I pray, God, that the grace of His Holy Spirit may be present with me, and while I am speaking, and that He would be pleased to direct my mind, mouth, and tongue in such a manner as to enable me to advance those truths which are holy, worthy of our God, and salutary to his creatures, to, his, to the glory of his name and for the edification of his church. I entreat you, also my most illustrious and polite hearers, kindly to grant me your attention for a short time while I endeavor to explain matters of the greatest importance and while your observation is directed to the subject in which I shall exercise myself. You will have the goodness to regard it rather than any presumed skill in my manner of treating it. The nature of his great subject requires us, at this hour especially, to direct our attention to the first instance, to the object of theology. For the objects of science are so intimately related and so essential to them as to give them their appellations. But God is himself the object of theology. The very term indicates as much. For theology signifies a discourse of reasoning concerning God. This is likewise indicated by the definition which the apostle gives of the science when he describes it as the truth which is after godliness. The Greek word here used for godliness is Eusebia, signifying a worship due to God alone, which the apostle shews in a manner of greater clearness when he calls this piety by the more exact term, Quasabia. All other sciences have their object, noble indeed, and worthy to engage the notice of the human mind, and in a contemplation of which much time, leisure and diligence may be profitably occupied. And with that, we're going to wrap up episode two of the Rooted Reason podcast. I appreciate you guys sticking here till the end, and I appreciate the graciousness um, with the way that I poorly uh, pronounced some of those words while reading the works of James Arminius. Um, I look forward to continuing on with this and exploring new subjects for you guys every day. Just remember as you go out, wear the Christian Christian lenses, and remember that Jesus is Lord and Savior.